you. That's a great song, the lyrics as well as the music. Isn't that beautiful? Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 to 18. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom who are from the circumcision. They have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured and all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you, and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming to you from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Paul was a prisoner in Rome. Although he was allowed to stay in a private dwelling near the barracks of the Praetorian Guard, he had a chain, he had a bracelet on his wrist, a small chain attached to it, and the other end of the chain was attached to a bracelet on the wrist of a Praetorian Guard. Every four hours, the soldiers changed shifts, but not Paul. He was bound by that chain 24 hours a day. Paul was waiting for a court appearance before the emperor. He had no idea what the outcome of that appearance might be. He might be freed and able to travel among the churches again, encouraging them and evangelizing in virgin territory. On the other hand, he might be executed. If he were executed, he would have been beheaded because that was one of the benefits of Roman citizenship. Now, tradition says that Paul and Peter died the same day. They traveled part of the way to their execution and they were parted. Peter to go a short distance away and be crucified upside down. Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, head to the executioner's block where he was beheaded. Beheading is short and swift. The pain is short, and that's one of the benefits of being a Roman citizen. So Paul waited an uncertain future, and he had no inkling what the outcome might be. He expressed his heart in the letter he wrote to the Philippians, Philippians 1, 20-24, according to my earnest expectation and hope 
that I will not be put to shame in anything, that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I am hard-pressed from both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ, well, that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Should Paul be freed, the churches would be blessed with the Spirit-filled apostle who would come into their presence to encourage and teach and build up. And yes, perhaps even the gospel taken to virgin territory, but Should he be beheaded, he would know the bliss of flying immediately into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet for the present, he languished in prison. Paul's imprisonment began in Jerusalem. He was there for a season. Then he was transported to Caesarea. And then there was that laborious journey across the Mediterranean to Italy landing and traveling a short distance up the Appian Way, finally coming into Rome, greeting along the way by Christians, now languishing in the prison in Rome. He was there for about two years. No doubt Satan was very happy. He thought that he had been able to take out of the field the most effective evangelist that the apostolic world knew. He thought, I haven't won the war, but I sure have won a battle. But things really were not always as they seemed. This morning I want to talk about the fact that God uses circumstances. And often those circumstances appear to us as a tragedy or a satanic victory when in truth they are circumstances that God is using, sometimes to advance His purposes, and sometimes to accomplish things in, his own, in our own lives. Think about the things that were accomplished because Paul was imprisoned. First, the leaders of the Jewish community had the opportunity to come into the presence of this man who was the greatest and most powerful proclaimer of the gospel in that era. And they were able to hear from his lips the truths about Jesus Christ. Some believed and some didn't. And yet they heard the gospel presented with a power that they never could have heard it had not Paul been imprisoned in Rome. Secondly, since Paul was located in this particular spot, the various members of the Roman church had come and sit in his feet, especially the leadership, and that was going to be very important for what that church was going to be facing within five years as the persecution of Nero was launched against the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Third was the influence on the Praetorian Guard. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says that because he has been chained to soldiers and because every four hours they change shift one after one after one, they heard the gospel. And throughout the whole Praetorian barracks now, people were talking about Jesus because Paul had been imprisoned in Rome. Fourth, others stepped up to the plate. 
Philippians chapter 1, 12, as you continue reading, Paul says, because I'm in jail, others are becoming bold, where now I'm no longer to preach, others are picking up the task and doing it. Now some out of jealousy, they're saying, ah, Paul's in prison, he can't preach anymore, now I'm going to preach, and I will win more people to Jesus than he did. Their motive was wrong, Paul said, but still the gospel's being preached. And yet there were some who were preaching for the right motive. Some of us have received emails from Cindy Perry about the fact that the visa regulations are making it very difficult for her to carry on her ministry. Traveling from country to country and crossing borders has really clamped down on her ability and the ability of the fellow workers who work with her in leadership to go from place to place. And our prayer is, oh God, please change all of that. But I wonder, are we wrong? Is it possible that God has allowed this to be imposed so that others who would always depend upon these leaders now have to take up the task and indigenous workers do things that Cindy has been doing? Who can say? The most important thing, though, for you and me that came out of Paul's imprisonment are the wonderful letters that he wrote. While in prison, Paul wrote Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, the circular letter that we know as Ephesians. Ephesians was written to be circulated through the churches of Asia and finally to be deposited in Ephesus. If Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, he wrote it during this time. And in a later time of his imprisonment, he wrote 2 Timothy. He also wrote a letter to Laodicea. Now, we don't have any firm copy of that. We have some documents that claim to be that, but they seem to be spurious. <laughs> now, I speak from experience. You cannot travel constantly and write consistently. And when you notice the writings of Paul and from whence they came, they always seem to have been written when he was located for a season somewhere. Now he was located for a season for a long time. And since he couldn't travel, he had to write. And he had the opportunity to write. And he did. As far as the history of the church following the first century is concerned, Paul's prison letters, have been more valuable to the church and more important than any missionary work he could have done during those years in which he was imprisoned. In future centuries, especially in the second century, when there were challenges that started to come forth as to who is Jesus, who is this Christ, various ones wanting to diminish his divinity, others wanting to diminish his humanity, the church had Colossians and Philippians, the two letters that present in the clearest and most precise form the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 5-8, Colossians 1, 9-23, beautiful statements which would not have existed had Paul not been in prison. The book of Ephesians. What a wonderful exposition Ephesians presents of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and lives of the church. 
Ephesians 1, 13-14 talks about the fact that we as believers have the assurance of heaven because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 11-12 that the universal church is the temple of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit dwells within. And then Ephesians 5, 18-20 the importance of allowing the Holy Spirit to flourish in each of us as individuals as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. These beautiful passages we would not have if Paul had not been in prison. There is no more precise presentation of God's design for the church than there is in Ephesians chapter 4. We wouldn't have that if Paul had not been in prison. Philemon presents wonderful truths about societal relationships that even a slave and a master can be brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians presents that wonderful truth that immersion replaces circumcision, not any outward sign, but some inner work of the Spirit that takes place when we are immersed into Jesus Christ. And there's no book in the Bible that presents a fuller and more complete discussion of the new covenant than does the book of Hebrews. And the exhortations in 2 Timothy are valuable to all who would serve Christ. We wouldn't have any of these things if Paul had not been imprisoned. And so Satan might rub his hands together and think, I've really done something. And God says, does God say fool? If he does, he might say, you fool. (laughs) Things are not as they appear. For you and for me, Paul's imprisonment is of greater value than anything that he could have accomplished when he was itinerating during those years. When Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, you remember the challenge. Each of you gather together, kill, kill a bullock, prepare it, put it on the altar, put the firewood at the bottom, I will also prepare an altar. Now you, you cry out to Baal and see if he will send fire down from heaven and ignore, ignite the firewood and consume the, the sacrifice. And you recall, they cried out, they cried out, they cried out, they danced, they slashed their bodies. They did everything. About noon, Elijah said this. And Elijah mocked them and said, Call with a loud voice, he is a god. Either he is occupied, maybe he's gone outside, maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Our God doesn't sleep. Psalm 121.3, He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This past week, we had an episode in our family somewhat traumatic, and I was talking with Jeremy, and Jeremy said this, uh, Now, Granddad, remember what you always say to me. God is not asleep. (laughs) Thank you, Jeremy, for reminding me. (laughs) God is not asleep. We think of the story of Joseph. His brothers were jealous of him. In a way, they almost had a right to be. He was such an obnoxious young man. They threw him in a pit, sold him to slavers. Slavers took him to Egypt. You know the story, he ended up in prison because he was falsely accused. Then through 
God's giving him the ability to interpret dreams. He was raised up and finally became the second most important man in Egypt. I'm sure you know the story. A famine began to move across the earth. Why did God allow that famine? A famine was going to be for seven years after seven years of prosperity. But the famine came. And his family was in Palestine and they were short of food. And so they came to Egypt. And remember when Joseph met his brothers and they were filled with fear, he said, God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant in the earth and keep you alive by a great deliverance. He put me in this place of power so that during the seven years of prosperity, I could prepare for the seven years of famine. And the seven years of famine were to force you to come into Egypt And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, but God was using circumstances to accomplish something. And so Joseph was able to assign to them the land of Goshen, the most verdant area in all of Egypt. And they moved into this land. They had their crops. They flourished. It was a time of peace. And what had been a large clan became a great nation. And they were very satisfied as to where they were. And God allowed then a Pharaoh to come to the throne who didn't know Joseph. He began to impose harsh slavery on them. And no longer were they happy in this verdant land of Goshen. And they began to cry out for a deliverer. By now, they were ready to leave Egypt. And God provided a deliverer and, you know, ultimately took them into the land of Palestine. And now they were a great nation because they had been able to flourish in Goshen. They now were in the land in which God wanted them. And they now they were the nation through which God was going to bring forth the Messiah. All these circumstances God used to accomplish His ultimate purpose of having the nation in the place where he intended for the Messiah to come forth. As far as eternity is concerned, the purposes of God involving his kingdom and his eternal eternal government is more important than any of us experiencing a life that is just a bed of roses. Paul and his companions on one occasion were on a journey. They had a destination. They were moving. They were going to reach it. And as they passed through Galatia, Paul got sick. And they had to abort the journey. And here's what Paul said in Galatians 4 about that. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a body illness, bodily illness, that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus Himself. Then where is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Why or how did the Galatians get the gospel? God let Paul get sick on the journey. And he had to spend time among them. And naturally, as he did everywhere he went, out of his mouth 
came the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there developed between him and the Galatians a deep love such that he said, and, and possibly his illness was visual, we don't know, but he said, if it were possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. They got the gospel, the deep love of Jesus, because God used the circumstance, perhaps even caused the circumstance of Paul's illness as he traveled through Galatia. This morning, let me bring this down to a personal level. Most of our lives are routine, aren't they? We plan our lives. We live by that routine. We go to bed at a certain time. We get out of bed at a certain time. We go to work. We eat meals at a particular time. And in our routines, we enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and usually, unconsciously, receive His guidance in the decisions and small things that we do in life. Now, although we're not aware of their presence, we also are attended by angels who, according to the book of Hebrews, are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation, Hebrews 1.14. And so we live these wonderful routines. Life just goes on. <laughs> and then, along the way, something happens. Our routine is broken. We may experience some totally unanticipated amazing blessing. We get a raise or a bonus. Usually it's the other way. What we experience is something that in the world's eyes is a tragedy, or at least a negative and troubling experience. When that happens, back to Gordon's sermon last week, when that happens, we must remember that the God who knows when every sparrow falls and if Figurative at least knows the, how many hairs we have on our head, that God is not asleep. Tires go flat. Now I'm speaking from some things I know that have happened the last few days to some of you <laughs> and to me. <laughs> Tires go flat, fuel pumps wear out, air conditioner compressors fail, refrigerators wear out, computers crash, airlines cancel flights. I know your lives well enough in mine. <laughs> these are some things that have happened. But when these things happen, often they're events that the God who does not sleep is using for a particular purpose. One that usually escapes us. <laughs> but it's there. Sometimes to an unbiased observer, it may be obvious the person whose self-worth and pride may be tied to his beautiful singing voice. And that's his identity and that's his worth. And God wants his identity and his worth to be in him. And so he allows his something to happen to cause that person to lose his beautiful singing voice. And then he has to ask, who am I? And God's arms are open wide. Come to me. 
One may be a tremendous athlete, one that is so proud of his ability to win everything he ever undertakes. He has tremendous coordination. And then some disease comes upon that individual and no longer does he have the physique, the coordination, the ability to always win. As a matter of fact, no longer can he even compete. And he begins to feel that he is nothing. And God's arms are open wide. Come to me. Be who you are in Christ. A woman looking in the mirror, and it's interesting we call these vanity mirrors, looking in the mirror may see her wonderful beauty and is so pleased to go out in the world and look down upon those whose faces are not as symmetrical. (laughs) And one day something happens that that beauty is lost. She can hardly stand to look in the mirror. But now it's time for her to find out who she really is. Who she can be in Christ Jesus. That lovely child. Who's been the very darling of your life. You have been so proud of that child. A wonderful student in school. So dear, so loving. About 13 years of age, a switch gets thrown. And then in 14 and 15, it gets thrown some more. And one day, as you see that child engaging in destructive behavior, and you want to pull that child back, and the child says to you, I didn't even ask to be born. And your heart is broken. And you feel rejected. And for the first time in your life, you understand something of what our Heavenly Father feels when we reject Him, when we rush headlong into destructive behavior and He tries to call us back and we do not hear His voice. But as we are a parent of a child and going through that, God says, now do you understand? You see, He uses circumstances to accomplish his purposes. Some years ago when I was praying in a time of great difficulty, I sensed the Holy Spirit say this to me, do not run from, nor resign yourself to the experiences that I bring into your life, especially the difficult ones, but embrace them because it is through thee that I will develop in you the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, on and on we could go. But the point is that when trauma happens, it is not because God is capricious. It is not because God is mean. So different from the Roman and Grecian gods, we read stories of them. For instance, Ulysses, here the gods sit up here and they're watching this man. Oh good, let's, let's make a shipwreck and see what he does there. Almost like praying, playing with rats in a maze. That's not our God. He isn't playing with our lives. But he has a purpose and a goal. And love 
that we can have the greatest gift of all in him and being who and what he wants us to be. When we come to these situations, the first thing we need to do is this, ask. Oh God, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, reveal to me of anything that I am thinking or doing or attitude that I have that you're trying to deal with. And as God turns a searchlight on your soul, if anything is revealed, then begin to plead with God by the Holy Spirit to deal with that and transform it according to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds and so on. Second thing is pray, O Father, Thy will be done. Again, not in resignation. Okay, you win. Some weeks ago, I stood by the bed of a man in a hospital who had but just a few days to live. In his life, he had given little thought to God. But as I stood by his bedside and asked him about his relationship with God, and it would be inappropriate for me to reveal that conversation. But here's what he said last of all. I've been lying here in bed praying, Oh, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And I can tell you it was not resignation, but there was an expectation in this man's heart as the angel of death was just not far down the hall. What a thing. Third thing is to give thanks to God in a manner that you cannot understand, and the passage Gordon read this morning is so important, that his sovereignty is accomplishing his purposes through you. And give thanks that he is with you even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There is such a blessing when we just give up and surrender to God. Some years ago, I had pneumonia. I was already sick, and I preached Sunday morning and sweat so much that my clothes were soaked, and that was a mistake because out of that, pneumonia finally developed. I can remember in the office one day, I started shivering and couldn't stop. And John McVeigh came in and lay me on the floor and spread his body over me. Now, if anybody had looked in and seen what was going on, they would have worried about both of us. But he was trying to, <laughs> he was doing his best to stop the shivers. I finally had to give up. I couldn't keep working. I went home and went to bed. Spent a month in bed. I couldn't even sit up at my desk. But I want to tell you that was one of the, those four weeks were among the four richest weeks of my entire life. Lord, I can't do anything. <laughs> I surrender into your arms. What a blessed time I had, forced immobilization. All I could do was lie in bed in my weakness and fellowship with him. I thank God I got pneumonia. <laughs> it was a tremendous, tremendous blessing. One thing that God sometimes wants to do 
is to break down the partitions and walls that we erect in our lives. Here's church. Here's work. Here's family. Here's play. And we have partitions in between all of this. And God breaks down those walls. A week ago, Friday, I flew to New York. <clears throat> Saturday morning, attended the funeral of Dale Rumble. Flew back Saturday afternoon. But it was a wonderful thing to sit in that service and listen to various ones get up and talk about the life of this man. Dale Rumble had been an IBM engineer almost from the earliest days of, of IBM. He was an IBM futurist. His idea or his role was to kind of plan ahead. He couldn't operate a computer. Isn't that amazing? All he did was pencil and paper. He had a rather large office, and around him in that facility there at Kingston, New York, there were others in smaller offices. And I heard different ones talking about, well, I'd go into Dale's office and ask him a question. He'd give me a question. I'd go back and think about it two weeks and then come back and ask another one. Here was a man who, in his job, constantly talked about Jesus. One man who was a businessman, he said, I talked to Dale some years ago about my business. How can I somehow glorify Jesus? And Dale said, just talk about Jesus all the time. Get rid of those partitions that you have erected in your life. And sometimes that is God's purpose and the things that happen to us to break down the partitions that keep us in this cubicle and then we move to this one and then we move it. But that in everything Christ is all and in all and for whom are all things. First Thessalonians. Well, let me tell you one more story. I had a phone call one morning this week from a man who was in tears. A person in his life had defrauded him. And he was broken. And he said two days before in his early morning prayers he had been praying. And he was praying the Lord's Prayer. And he said when I got to that section, Lord, that you would forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. The Holy Spirit stopped me up short and said, in just a few days, you're going to have to learn what forgiveness really is. And what that man is going through right now, he's learning what forgiveness really is. God is doing something in his life. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. May God be praised. Thank you, Father, that you are not asleep. In Jesus' name, amen.